Welcome to the Wirecard Saga, a podcast with Tom Fox and Mikhail Ryder-Gordon, Managing Director of Institutional Ethics and Integrity at Affiliated Monitors. Over this podcast series, we're going to take a deep dive into the Wirecard Saga to see where it may take us literally across the globe. Mikhail Ryder-Gordon and myself continue our exploration of all things Wirecard. Episode 24, Part 2, Know When to Hold Them as we explore the persons, entities, and governments who have been damaged, some beyond repair, by Wirecard and the fallout from its scandal. The Wirecard Saga is a special presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Box. Welcome back to another episode of the Wirecard Saga, where I'm joined by my colleague, Mikhail Ryder-Gordon, Managing Director at Affiliated Monitors. Mikhail, what do we have today? Thanks, Tom. Listeners, good to be back. I know, I took more than a little break, but you didn't think I'd stop broadcasting just because the Bundestag IC released its report the other week, did you? I am going to talk about that tome of findings. This is maybe not in this episode or part two of this episode. Spoiler alert, this is a two-parter. But folks, I'm just getting started. Why? (laughs) Well, we may have just marked the one-year anniversary since Wirecard imploded, but there is so much more yet to come and be disclosed about this company, its executives, its enablers, its supporters, and so many more rocks to turn over to see what slithers out. In fact, this next year with Wirecard, let's call it season two. Season two. As the criminal trials get started and other countries' investigations spin up, this season promises to be even more shocking, more entertaining, and outrageous than the last. You think it's not possible? (laughs) Just think of the evolution we've been on in the past year. So this episode is, by necessity, another two-parter, because as we paddle through the growing gyre of dirty money swirling around the globe and examine just how frequently Wirecard appears time and again, we need to look at not only current events, but now recent past investigations that at the time didn't always obviously connect to the company, but now more closely closely or clearly reveal shared patterns and actors. You'll hear hints of what we're headed into just a moment, well, let's start with catching up, as we usually do, on recent events in All Things Wirecard, because, as convention would have it, it hasn't been dull. Okay, first up, former chair of Wirecard AG's board, Wolf Matthias. Did you know he hosted a visit from the Munich police at his Frankfurt home the other week? It was about two weeks ago. I feel like I'm reporting the society pages. Herr Matthias wore splendid tweed. Polizze Muchen? Stylish always in dark blue. True, Herr Matthias wasn't necessarily expecting his guests. Or did he maybe suspect they'd come around to leave their calling card soon enough? German media outlets confirmed the raids on Matthias's home and office on June 22nd. And folks, recall Matthias not only chaired Wirecard since, what was it, 2008? Only stepping down in 2020 as everything was going to hell in a handbasket. But he was also president of Wirecard Bank. It's funny, this. Seemingly, he had sufficient energy to serve as both chair 
and president. And yet when the Bundestag IC summoned him twice to testify to the committee this past year, our spry 76-year-old Wolfster declined, ostensibly for reasons of health. (laughs) Maybe it just made him feel queasy, the thought of telling the truth. Turns out the IC was likely on to something in seeking Herr Matthias' testimony, as new evidence has emerged that suggests he was mm, quite active in his support of Jan Marsalek's less legitimate activities at Wirecard. But then, are we really surprised by this turn of events? This is the same former senior banker for Credit Suisse in Germany who, after joining Wirecard, told an FT reporter when the investigative stories were at their epogee that the news coverage and short-seller discussions about potential fraud at Wirecard was just a, quote, nuisance. He went on to defend Auditor EY, (laughs) but he regrets that one, and even sought to block the special internal investigation that would ultimately lead to the Rajan and Tan report. But then we remember that former member of Wirecard Bank Management Board Rainer Wexler had dug the litter box and testified to the IC that despite a, quote, intense relationship with him, Matthias, he thought Matthias had fulfilled his supervisory board duties mm, not particularly well. <laughs> Perhaps the fear of kitty litter being flung at him again is what drove Andreas Letcher, you know, one of the two EY audit partners that led the Wirecard audits for nearly a decade, he who made a beeline to join Deutsche Bank last year. Maybe that's what led him to seek an injunction from Berlin's administrative court, attempting to block his name appearing in the IC's report. Seriously. <laughs> this, this is the guy who led a decade of the EY audits of Wirecard. Yeah, he had his attorney seek an injunction to block A, block the publication of the report, and... B, remove his name from the report. (laughs) Spoiler alert! His name isn't just in the report. He's got his own chapter. Yay! Recall, he refused to say anything to the IC when he was summoned. He is under criminal investigation by the Munich Public Prosecutor's Office, as well as by Oppos for his role in the Wirecard audit failings by EY, and his signatures all over the EY Wirecard audits. Hmm. But in his motion to the court, Letcher argued that any mention of his name in the report would violate his personality rights. Now, non-German listeners may not be familiar with this set of German civil laws, so quick sidebar here. These are rights enshrined to protect an individual's personality from unreasonable or unauthorized public exposure. Essentially, the rights cover different spheres, private social, um, general right to personality, and so on. You are who you are. They are, in a sense, property laws, although one holds the right to publicize oneself as one sees fit. But there are also privacy and defamation elements thrown in. So, Latcher asserted his general right of personality would be infringed if his name showed up in the IC's report. Unfortunately for Herr Lescher, under the personality laws, If the author or authors of the publication are stating facts about that person, it's generally lawful. (laughs) So, too, if the author is stating an opinion, so long as it's not intended to defame the individual, it's just typically deemed, well, lawful. 
<laughs> Letcher, of course, denies all wrongdoing, but the court didn't find an infringement. EY completely disavowed Letcher's motion, saying, well, he hasn't worked for us in years. Their efforts to prevent separate reports to the IC specific to EY and their audits being published, those continue. Letcher's motion suggested just his initials be used or his name entirely stricken from the report. And folks, if you're looking at the draft report, he first appears in Section D, Chapter 6, but you can find his name littered throughout. Okay. And speaking of nowhere to hide, Marcus Braun has apparently been playing silly buggers with the Munich Public Prosecutor's Office and private creditors, hiding his assets from those who seek to seize his hard-earned toys. The Public Prosecutor's Office has gone so far as to state publicly they believe there to be, quote, clear indications of Braun transferring assets to, call them, safer hands, where pesky seizure orders can't quite reach. Naughty hair, Braun. Creditors have reported the art is missing from the walls of his home. That's bronze, that is. Real estate and furniture have magically transferred to his wife, Sylvia. The 18,000 euro living room rug? Sylvia's. Art and antiques have allegedly mysteriously vanished from the various Braun residences. The artwork by Gunter Röcker? He of the zero movement and fond of nails on canvas. Suddenly Sylvia's. Remind me what this real housewife of Wirecard did for a living again? <laughs> oh, and for you collectors out there, Belgian auction house Gallery Lampertz has bronze Eco piece Feld 83-84 for sale for a cool 788,000 euros. Snap that up. Sylvia needs to raise funds. She has Marcus's law firm bills to pay unless Chubb finally coughs it up. Unfortunately, Herr Braun was a tad late in shifting certain prizes over to his sister, wife, and others, so that the statement uh, of assets he attested to at the public prosecutor's office way back in January of this year, oh, the distance of time, well, it has, <laughs> that statement has what mm, we might politely term inconsistencies, now, Braun claims his assets, bank accounts, real estate, etc., total 75 million euro and not a fenning more. Those have been seized. But those interested in understanding the greater sum of Herr Braun's assets have caused to believe he's not been entirely forthcoming with them. For those who have tracked Braun's market transactions in the years leading up to the demise of Wirecard, you will have observed that he is a either a really bad financial manager to have lost hundreds of millions of euro prior to corporate implosion, or B, he has significantly understated the sum total of his assets. Hmm, I wonder which it could be. Certainly, if some of the travel and expense reports that have surfaced are anything to go by, Herr Braun knew how to waste some money. One trip to Vienna... From, Los, uh, from, La, from Vienna to Los Angeles, returning to Munich, it ran 199,000 euros. Seriously. Flight from Vienna to LA, back to Munich. True, he did take a G5, but he picked up the tab himself. Wirecard didn't. I also like the multiple trips from Munich to London and back, all averaging in the 20,000 to 25,000 euro range. 
<laughs> what, Nikki Air wasn't good enough for the CEO of Wirecard? Newspaper Handelsblatt surfaced yet another property of bronze in Austria registered to his investment company. Here's a question. Did Braun own that yacht he used to pull alongside Deutsche Bank's Schutz, or was he just renting? Thus far, everyone seems to have forgotten about Braun's residence in Harris on the French Riviera. That's got to be worth a farthing or two, don't you think? I wonder if Braun will try to claw back the 70,000 euros he donated to Austrian Chancellor Sebastian Kurz's election campaign. Fairweather friends that they are, the OVP party of Austria has sought to distance themselves from Braun. You know the saying, with friends like that, who needs? Uh, and Herr Braun's uh, uh, asset burdens, well, they just keep growing. A few weeks ago, the Innsbruck Regional Court, and that's Austria, handed down a decision that confirmed the international jurisdiction of Austrian courts with regard to claims of aggrieved investors seeking to recover some of those missing assets from Brawny Boy. Marcus and real housefrau Sylvia had to testify to the court via, well, Zoom. The court ruled that as Braun maintained a residence in Austria and in any case had considerable, their words, real estate assets in Austria, naming the properties in Kitzbühel and Vienna, it, quote, could not be surprising for him to be held liable also, I like the word also here, before Austrian civil courts also. That suggests the court recognizes that, well, others in other jurisdictions will be fighting for, hmm, hopefully not all the same assets. That would be a squabble. Now, the decision isn't final yet, but the court found that despite Braun only occasionally being bothered to utilize that lovely 5,000-square-foot ski chalet in Kitzbühel, you know, the one with a view out across the entire valley that he claimed was his primary residence for tax purposes, Vienna was really where he spent much of his time, and therefore Vienna is where jurisdiction is established. So now Vienna's regional court for civil matters is receiving all of those investor lawsuits. Now, attorney Roman Tardis, who represents a plaintiff, spoke of a first-stage victory for the injured parties. Now, according to Tardis, proceedings in Austria could be handled much more swiftly, and the injured parties would be able to assert their claims more quickly. In Germany, on the other hand, all claims would most likely be dealt with in a capital investor test case, and then it would drag on for years and years. Braun's lawyer, Marcus Kellner, announced that, of course, they would probably, likely, definitely, appeal the decision of the Innsbruck Regional Court. Now, as I've said, Austrian courts will move much faster than those of Germany. And speaking of swift German courts, apparently the Munich Public Prosecutor's Office has decided that this whole wirecard thing, you know, the defrauding investors, the cooking of the books, market manipulation, the money laundering, the bribery, the corruption of public officials, the treason, the sanctions busting. It's just so hard to prosecute. Investigating all the crimes committed by Wirecard and executives would, quote, take them a matter of years rather than months. Oh, and it's so hard. Wow. As if building a bigger and better case against Braun will somehow cut into their weekends and, I don't know, take time away from touching up the paint on the garden gnomes. 
So like every other German regulatory body thus far involved with Wirecard, they're going to not sweat all of the crimes. That's right. The Munich Public Prosecutor's Office has announced that their prosecutorial efforts will focus only on certain crimes in order to reach a conclusion more quickly. Seriously? You've spent the past year watching evidence mount of the total abnegation of regulatory oversight of Wirecard since its inception? The IC, the press, and law enforcement around the world have identified a litany of major crimes committed by Wirecard executives. You have whistleblowers and Wirecard employees who've turned state's evidence, and your response is to try to wrap it up quickly? The Munich public prosecutor has said they're aiming for an indictment of Braun by later this year, likely as soon as this fall, in other words, in a couple of months. Listeners, I know you are asking, what the hell? Why? Why rush this? Why ignore dozens of crimes just to get a quick indictment? Apparently, Germany isn't done self-abusing and undermining itself quite yet. I don't know. Why rush the indictment of Braun? Well, saith the public prosecutor, quote, no one should be kept in provisional custody for that long, referring to Braun. Calendars, time. What did Marx say? Time is everything, man is nothing. He is, at most, time's carcass. <laughs> but you know, better to get that conviction for jaywalking than expend more time and energy unraveling the more serious crimes. All right, I won't pick too much on the prosecutor's office. Rumor has it that they have some 20 defendants they're working on indicting. See why these things take time? And Oliver Bellenhaus hasn't stopped talking yet. Good for you, Ollie. Thus far, charges in Germany and Austria range from embezzlement and accounting fraud, organized crime, or what they euphemistically call gang fraud, and suspected espionage for foreign powers. Good. It's a start. It is assumed that a few other ex uh, executives from Wirecard that they have in custody will be allowed to languish a wee bit longer with subsequent indictments not showing up until 2022. Oh, maybe there's hope. So now, maybe the strategy is to get Braun convicted swiftly and then use prosecutions of others to build additional charges to bring against Braun at all, but this just feels like they're phoning it in. So long as they get a conviction for something, job done. He gets time served and is out by what, 2023 on good behavior? Everyone forgets. Braun saunters back to a comfortable life, no further embarrassment of certain politicians, political parties and their cronies, no dirty laundry being aired in the courtroom. Hasn't Germany been shamed enough? Ugh. Even the Philippines has the cojones to bring serious charges. They've filed criminal charges for money laundering, bank fraud, forgery, cybercrimes, multiple violations of various e-commerce laws, bribery, and more. Oh, you go, Philippines. Charges are being brought against a collection of former bank employees, Joey Dela Cruz Ariano, Judith Pay. They involved a they were involved in that fake trust account for Wirecard. And certainly the Manila lawyer slash former assistant secretary of transportation, Mark Christopher Tolentino, who is also being sued by the Bank of the Philippine Islands. Love that. Tolentino's law office is named a smattering of Jane and John Doe's and none other than Jan Marsalek. 
<laughs> now, I'm sure Yanni is quaking in his little valenkis. Oh no, the Philippines are coming for me. Whatever will I do? Help me, help me, GRU. <laughs> Listeners, you all no doubt read the breathless story published by Divalt, which claimed information from BND chief Bruno Call at a closed-door session of the IC a couple of weeks ago. Ready? Marsalix in Moscow. No, you don't say. Who knew? Call purportedly told the IC that the BND suspected the stories of Marsalik hanging out in Spetsnaz land were true. If you've forgotten, go back to episodes from March and April. <laughs> Remember Marsalik's telegram messages and him airbeing being with the FSB's Vimple unit? BND, if you need help, ring me. Doesn't it feel a lifetime ago that, what was it, June 30th, 2020? Oh my gosh, it's been more than a year, folks. That text from one of Marsalik's buddies asking, have you gone underground? And Marsalik responding, sort of. Sort of, as in, not really. Just dial Balashinka 496. And speaking of Marsalik's enablers, let's talk. That's, this, is, this is the guy who's subject to, uh, of the episode, really. Thomas Schellenbacher, former Austrian FPO National Council member, parliamentarian, was he who partnered with former work colleague Martin Weiss of the BVD to act as Marsalek's travel agents. Again, no Nikki Air for Wirecard execs. Well, Herr Schellenbacher's glorious run on the wrong side of the law has come to an end. Recall in episode 21, way back in March of this year, Schellenbacher had, Schellenbacher had been convicted of engaging and defrauding the Austrian state of, well, millions via his various and sundry, sundry construction companies. Well, he was sentenced to two years and nine months prison for aggregated fraud and fraudulent crookedness. God, I love that term. Fraudulent crookedness. <laughs> Poor Thomas. The Austrian Ministry of Justice, the BMJ, they responsible for prosecuting economic and corruption crimes. They appealed the judgment. No, no, no. They, they weren't appealing on Schellenbacher's behalf. No, they appealed because they think the court's sentencing was too lenient. Quote, After supervisory review of the verdict, the Federal Ministry of Justice came to the conclusion that the amount of the prison sentence was not appropriate to the guilt and the crime. So saith the BMJ. Oh, God, it's hard to keep the giggles out of my voice. Okay, so in a couple of months, Vienna's higher regional court will decide if they should award Schellenbacher a longer sentence. Needless to say, Schellenbacher's fighting the appeal. Now, how does this relate to Wirecard beyond Schellenbacher's shenanigans as Marsalek's holiday booking agent? Schellenbacher is still awaiting trial by the Vienna Public Prosecutor's Office for his role in aiding and abetting Marsalek. But information has emerged in the Austrian parliamentary inquiries into Wirecard, the company, and certain of its execs, direct involvement in political corruption in Austria and the nexus to other frauds and scandals that tie back to Russia and Ukrainian oligarchs and their financial support of far-right Austrian political parties, essentially having the likes of Austrian politicians in their pockets. 
and in Schellenbacher's case, more like complete and utter ownership of him, all whilst he dallied with Marsalek. Ready? Let's dip into this particularly murky pool for a moment, because this requires some history to help put his relationship with Wirecard and Marsalek truly into context. Schellenbacher didn't just come out of nowhere to assist Marsalek a year ago. Their ties and connections run far deeper and go far back many, many years. Schellenbacher ties back to the Ibiza scandal, go back to episodes 20 and 21, that brought down Austrian Chancellor Kurtz's last government and other Austrian politicos with ties to Marsalek, including former Austrian FPO leader Johann Gudnis, as well as to the bribes Marsalek and Wirecard paid for intel from the BVT and that whole Martin Weiss affair, and the cowardly fleeing from justice. But one needs to go much further back and examine Schellenbacher's history to really appreciate his role as a pivot point that helps connect Wirecard and Marsalek to the Austrian node of money laundering, Russian intelligence and interference in Austrian and European politics, and so much more. So let's start with a story, media outlet profile, that ran first back in 2015 to see that Schellenbacher has much deeper ties with the Ukraine and Russia and how these relate to his involvement with Wirecard and Marsalek. Specifically, how Schellenbacher ended up chummy with former governor of Odessa, appointed by then-President Poroshenko, slash former head of Ukraine's largest petroleum company, Erknafta, slash self-declared investor in Austria, slash all-around oligarch, Igor Petrovich Pelastia, and his buddy, Vitor Babushak and a slew of other Ukrainian oligarchs, all of whom are understood to be ultimately under the direction of controversial uber-oligarch Ihor Kolomoyshki, or Benya, to his friends. The second or third, not sure, Benya, let me know, richest person in Ukraine, which weirdly culminates in a decrepit Austrian ski resort although I am not going to cover this summering story here. Okay, so just a minute. Last year, Palacio was elected chairman of the For the Future Party in the Ukraine. Uh, For the Future being the new iteration of the Ukrainian Association of Patriots, Patriots Party. Okay, you see, whilst Schellenbacher and Weiss were working in Austrian government in sensitive positions... Schellenbacher was also the chairman of the Austrian-Ukrainian Parliamentary Group in the National Council, and he would be awarded a seat in the Austrian Parliament, widely understood to have been essentially bought for him by same-said oligarchs. Now, Schellenbacher claims he first met those particular Ukrainians back in 2008. Schellenbacher has a ten-had, I should say had, I'd not certain he has access to any of his entities at the moment, had a 10% interest in a Swiss company, Renko Invest uh, Action Gelschaft. For brevity, call it Renko. Renko, founded in 2011 with 350,000 mystery euros in share capital, had no employees, no email address, no 
website, no, no domain, no discernible business activity, a telephone number that resolved to a Swiss law firm, Pulver and Farney, and whilst Renko had no designated shareholders, it did have a three-person board. <laughs> Hold that thought. Hold the notion, Austrian FPO National Council member with opaque shell company in Swiss tax haven with three board members. Let's go back one year prior to the formation of Renko to 2010. At that time, Schellenbacher had a number of Austrian companies, all related to planning and construction services, particularly oriented towards selling services to the Austrian state, Remember, this is how he defrauded the government and found himself in prison? Okay. He offered wastewater treatment plants, wind farms, flood protection, traffic guidance systems, pretty much anything the state put a bid out for, he'd, he'd pretend to have a company. Now, his companies at this time, 2010, were UVET, Technik, GmbH, we just call it UVET, IBS Umwelt und Werkstechnik, UVT Umwelt, IBS Energy, STC Service Technique Consulting. Okay, got that? We've got UVET, IBS Umwelt, UVT Umwelt, IBS Energy, and STC Service Technique Consulting. These companies of Schellenbachers, well, pretty much consensus is they were widely acknowledged to be small, and whilst uh, one news outlet called them moderately successful, they rarely turned a profit, and two ultimately went into BK, and not, not because Schellenbacher was in prison. This was back in 2010, so I think the BKs were in 2013. But one of the most interesting activities they had in common was that beginning in 2010, Schellenbacher started granting control in these entities to politicians and, air quotes, businessmen, from the Ukraine. Huh? Who were these Ukrainian movers and shakers that Schellenbacher was so generous with? Artur Abdenov, once the owner of several steel mills in Ukraine, and at that time ranked by the Kiev Post as maybe roughly the 32nd richest Ukrainian. Volodymyr Zenovich, once head of Ukraine's state-owned energy company, Ukrinter Energy, uh, Ukraine, uh, uh, what was the energy company called? Ukrinder Energy, who himself got embroiled in a spot of bother about low quality South African coal, a little bit of a corruption scandal. Okay. Who was the third uh, Ukrainian? Maxim Lavrinovich, one of the Ukraine's best known lawyers and son of a former Ukrainian justice minister. And Pelachtia and Babushak. As profile, the media outlet asked, why should Ukrainian energy billionaires co-invest with the underperforming middling companies of an Austrian civil engineer? Why indeed? This is where the fun starts. Because in November 2010, Schellenbacher, seemingly in a random act of kindness, ceded 100% of his UVET officially, for a symbolic euro, to Viktor Babushak, who also took over the management of UVET. That was awfully kind of you, Viktor. A few months later, Schellenbacher handed a 25% stake in IBS 
to Valencia, who became managing director of the company. That same month, March 2011, if you're keeping track, Schellenbacher turned over the management of UVT Umfeld to Abdenov, who by 2014 had just absorbed the entire entity. Not to leave any of his new buddies out of this largesse, in the fall of 2011, Zinovich initially acquired 10% of IBS energy, later upping his stake to 25%. And as 2011 was coming to a close, Lavrinovich acquired a 25% stake in STC Service Technique Consulting. According to the notarial deed on that, on that particular transaction, he received the shares in Schellenbacher's company as a gift, <laughs> which he then later increased to 25%. Listeners, if you're scratching your heads right now, be patient. Schellenbacher provided his besties, Palatia, Babushak, and Abdenov, with addresses in Austria, wait for it, his personal home address, and that of his parents. Oh yes, this was a greater Schellenbacher family endeavor. What with giving away their companies and then providing their personal home addresses for Ukrainian politicians and oligarchs. Why did the Ukrainian oligarchs need Austrian residential addresses in Melk? By the way, a lovely area. Do visit the monastery when you're there. Why was Ukrainian oligarch Abdenov using Schellenbacher's parents' home address? And why was Palacia, former governor of Odessa, calling Schellenbacher's house number his own? Ostensibly, to help them obtain Austrian residence permits, which would then lead to rights to move about freely in the Shenzhen area. Seriously, at one point, Palacia was actually questioned about sharing an address with Schellenbacher and claimed to be essentially his roommate. Can't you just hear the roomy squabbles between the billionaire oligarch and the Austrian civil sir, uh, civil engineer? I clearly marked that yogurt as mine. I can't believe you ate it. And it was not your knock to have guests. Oh, good grief. What Schellenbacher's companies, well, the entities that he ceded to his Ukrainian chums, had in common, besides contracts with the Austrian state, was that they all had big loans held by one private Austrian bank, Meinl. Meinl Bank. Yes, the same greater Meinl family that brought us the Grocery Emporium. The loans were huge against the minimal revenue these companies generated. Now, a side note, Meinl Bank is defunct now. It tried changing its name to hide its shame, but it didn't work. There are literally years of press on various scandals involving Minel Bank. What exactly happened in the past couple of years to cause its demise? Short version? What has Minel Bank become associated with and accused of? You know the answer on this show. You just didn't realize how, thanks to Austrian politicians, it ties back to Wirecard. Money laundering. Not just any money laundering. Minel Bank violated AML regs in a big, bad way way. For an amusing divertissement, look Meinl up in the FinCEN leaks. Anywho, particularly with respect to servicing customers from Russia and the Ukraine. Now, in a moment, I'll describe how the scheme worked for you, and you'll see just how Schellenbacher fits in, if you haven't already guessed. Maybe you sussed it out, you know, clever listeners. 
Listeners, did you happen to notice the indictment that came down from the U.S. Department of Justice in the last days of May? No? You missed it? I don't believe it. May 28th. DOJ charged two former executives from the defunct Meinl Bank with money laundering related to an international bribery scheme involving, no, not Wirecard, Brazilian construction company Odebrecht. My God, the Wirecard saga is a conspiracy theorist's dream. The indictment charged Meinl's former CEO, Peter Weinzerl, and former officer Alexander Waldstein for allegedly helping to launder some $170 million through the U.S. financial system on behalf of Odebrecht. What for? In order to pay bribes to public officials worldwide and maybe avoid the Brazilian tax authorities. Natch. How did we get here? Between 2006 and 2016, Weinzierl and Waldstein exploited their roles at Meinl and at Meinl subsidiary bank in Antigua. Want to rob, I told you, want to rob a bank? Own one. They used their roles as board members to launder money in exchange for, well, more money. By the by, only Weinzierl has been arrested. Waldstein's on the lam. Now, Weinzierl was taken into custody in the UK. Interestingly, in the filing to the English court, DOJ indicated they feared if the court granted Weinzierl bail, he'd flee to Russia. Why? Interestingly, Weinzierl was not only the director of Julius Meinl's personal trust, incorporated in Malta, of course, and the Czech Republic, and there is the UK incorporated Meinl Capital Limited, uh, Capital Markets Limited, and that Germany company, a German company of his, and that one in Cyprus. Oh, and East Advisors, Vermogens. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna slaughter this. Sorry, Vermogenza Voltung. The held with of all people, supposedly Olga Yakubovskaya. Uh huh. But he also personally had Balkan Acquisitions Limited also a Maltese company, and maintained a personal address in Moscow. It does look like a lovely home with a nice garden. It backs up to a large park. Very pleasant. Moscow Oblast, Yerlovo. Oh, yeah. Huh. Doesn't the Russian Academy of Foreign Intelligence have a facility there in Yerlovo? Nice area, outside of Moscow proper. Still near amenities, easy to get into the city. Hmm. Let's take a step back, because before the DOJ issued their indictment, Meinl already had an extensive rap sheet, and it's useful to know its relationship to Schellenbacher. In 2009, Meinl Bank's very existence had been threatened when Julius Meinl V, as if they're a royal dynasty and not grocers, oh, those chairs? They're antiques from the reign of Meinl Senk. Julius Meinl Senk, scion of the founders, was accused by regulators of having availed himself of complex ownership structures, read shell companies, and offshore schemes to conduct investment fraud on a systemic scale. Now, the Austrian regulators ultimately gave up on investigating Julian Senk and dropped all charges against him due to inconclusive evidence. Still, the case did some damage to Meinl Bank. 
So after that unfortunate setback, the bank looked for new business opportunities and found them in Russia. In 2017, investigation files of Moldovan authorities and a database leaked to the OCCRP and the Russian newspaper Novaya Gazeta identified documents that implicated Meinl Bank in what is known as the Russian laundromat scandal, whereby some 20 billion, that's with a B, that had been stolen from the Russian government through organized crime and and or corrupt officials was pushed out through European banks for the purposes of cleansing. Like a high colonic, euro wash in, clean money out. This laundering ran from 2010 through 2014. For years, money flowed through the secret network from Russian accounts to shell companies in low tax countries, primarily Britain, Cyprus, and from there out to the rest of the world. Billions, billions from Russia diverted from public contracts, tax evasion, proceeds of organized crime, you get the idea. The money was run through Moldova and outward to several banks in Europe. Between 2012 and 2014, 17 Austrian, that's right, that not terribly large but very pleasant Alpine country, had 17 of its financial institutions implicated in this laundromat, Meinl Bank included. Now, Meinl processed a little over 300,000 euros in suspicious transactions, which is pittance, until you look at Meinl's larger role in all of this. Meinl, which had gambled big and lost, unfortunately, in real estate back in the mid-aughts, was looking for other ways to recoup against these losses. And they found a new business line in offering banking to other banks in Eastern Europe. Because Meinl wasn't so much assisting other banks as they were helping the bankers from those institutions steal money from their own banks and line their pockets. Meinl's services proved extraordinarily lucrative. Meinl Bank had already been implicated in laundering for its dealings with shell companies, right? And and failing to ask questions about clients who, well, for all intents and purposes, really were just shell companies. The Austrian Financial Market Authority, FMA, filed charges against Meinl Bank money laundering through a network of shell companies in incorrect connection with a corporation, uh, the corruption scandal involving Odebrecht. Some 3 billion euros, again there's that B, in bribes alleged to have been channeled from shell companies through accounts at Meinl's subsidiary Meinl Bank Antigua. And that was just the subsidiary, 3 billion. But the Austrians didn't obtain convictions. The FMA was accused of hesitancy in its failure to dig too deeply into Meinl's scheme, which allowed loans and investments to get repackaged through multiple financial institutions and obscure the true beneficial owners at the end of the complex transaction. And in the lead-up to recent events, Meinl Sank was again alleged to have been involved in several fraud cases that again tied back to offshore companies. Now, recall Schellenbacher's deals that start in 2010. Okay, got that in the back of your head? In 2019, the European Central Bank revoked Meinl's banking license. Why? Because oligarchs and businessmen from the Ukraine 
Lithuania and Latvia were identified as using Minel Bank to siphon hundreds of millions of dollars out of those countries. Remember that lucrative business line Minel got into? For more than a decade, banks in the Ukraine, Latvia, and Lithuania were stripped of assets by their owners using really what can only be described as fairly rudimentary tactic, but one facilitated by Minel Bank. How did they do it? Remember Schellenbacher ceding control of his not very profitable Austrian companies to his Ukraine oligarch besties? And how those same companies held big loans with Meinl? Here's how it was done. Banks in places, like the Ukraine, would open correspondent banking accounts with Meinl. The banks back in the Ukraine would serve as guarantee for a Meinl loan to an offshore company like a shell in Austria, or that Swiss shell company Schellenbacher was on the board of. And with opaque ownership and no obvious direct ties to the bank's owners, the borrower, here are those air quotes again, would then default, prompting Meinl to invoke the guarantee and recoup the money from the originating bank. Who was stuck with the loss? Well, the regular folk in the Ukraine or Latvia or Lithuania whose national deposit guarantee systems had to kick in and cover the VIG. In the Ukraine alone, some hundred banks were implicated in laundering and dodgy schemes related to this tunnel of money to Minel. Hundreds of millions of euros were siphoned out of these three Eastern European countries. I mean, it decimated state budgets, it left creditors with worthless IOUs, and at least to date, Four countries have confirmed criminal investigations of operations facilitated by Meinl between 2011 and 2015. Meinl Bank, before it completely folded due to the scale of the scandal, had also operated a 1.2 million equity fund that invested in Eastern Europe, including Russia and Turkey. The second largest holder of that equity fund I'm sorry, the second largest holding of the equity fund was actually in Russia's <coughs> Surbank. Sorry, you know the one. Sparebank under EU and U.S. sanctions due to the whole violation of international law where Russia illegally grabbed Crimean territory. You know, and just as a by and by, in 2012, Russia's state-owned Sparebank purchased Volksbank International, which was the Austrian banking group's Eastern European subsidiary. That gave Spurbank a substantial retail and commercial banking presence in southeastern Europe. Assets in Bosnia, Croatia, Czech Republic, Hungary, Serbia, Slovakia, Slovenia. And it also kind of underscores how Russia uses Balkan, Baltic, other Eastern European channels to gain indirect access to European corporate subsidiaries often offshore shell companies. Anyway, Meinl wasn't the only Austrian bank in Russia, but it was the one offering prime services to oligarchs. Now, ironically, just before it changed names to Anglo-Austrian Bank, which didn't change the fact it had a decade plus of laundering attributed to it, just before this, ironically, Meinl filed a SAR, that's a suspicious activity report, on several clients of it, Key Ring Holdings Limited, and Vladislav, Vlad to his friend Smirnov. Some 2 million euros got frozen as regulators agreed, ha, huh, you're right, 
Minel, suspicious behavior indeed. Oh, you clever listeners, you sussed it. Yes, that's Smirnoff. Binary options Russian Smirnoff. Go back to episodes 11 and 24. Gal Barak's co-defendant. The money being laundered through Minel? Yeah, tied to binary scams through Keyring, a company Smirnoff and a Ukrainian and a Belarusian and Russian partners, including Jerry Shalon, held and moved money to and from other shell companies. Keyring, by the way, was incorporated in the Seychelles. So old school. Many of which were also allegedly in construction, the shell companies, that is, like Schellenbachers. And Meinl Bank was the FI of choice. Okay, one of several players, Schellenbacher, Austrian parliamentarian from 2013-2017, provided the companies and covers to his Ukrainian buddies. Don't get me started on that ludicrous holiday hotel deal in summering with Pletschia. To help launder money through the Meinl loans all the while, he's a senior official in Austria's FPO party and interacting with Marsalik, dating back to at least 2015, who is also assisting some Ukrainian oligarchs with their banking needs. FPO in Russia? Oh yeah, they're tight. Remember December 2016, FPO leaders traveled to Moscow. They signed a formal agreement with the deputy head of the United Russia Party, Sergei uh, Zhelezhnyak, another one under sanctions related to the Crimea. There's that theme again. Austrian parliamentary elections are then held October 15, 2017, center-right Austrian People's Party, that's the OVP. They win the largest number of seats. They form a coalition with FPO which had become a large party in Austria. Heinz Christian Straka, remember him, becomes vice chancellor. And then what happens? A Bitha gate happens. And that includes and ropes in FPO politician Johann Gudenis, then general secretary of the Austrian-Russian Friendship Society, who is already working with Marsalik. And he's implicated. All linked to Schellenbacher. Straka headed to court this week for his corruption trial related to Ibithagate, so we should learn some interesting tidbits out of that trial, featuring same-said folks tied to Marsalik and Wirecard and Schellenbacher. It's funny, when Straka was vice-chancellor, he repeatedly called for the European Union to end sanctions against Russia, saying those pesky sanctions were damaging the Austrian economy. Well, at least Meinl Bank had found a workaround. And goodness takes us back not only to the Ibiza scandal, where the woman, Irina Markovic, pretended to be the niece of a Russian oligarch, which wasn't too far off because her uncle is said to be oligarch Igor Markov, who is linked to Dmitry Firtosh, who was being assisted by Marsalik, and who had business dealings with Gudenus, long before Abithagate. Markovic is Serbian but lives in Vienna. Did I mention Markovic is tied to the Austrian-Serbian society? Mm. The FBO has gained big support from the Serbs in Austria. Factoid, Goodness's wife is Serb from Bosnia and that both Straka and Goodness had received medals from Bosnian-Serb national leader Malor Dordic. And Serbia hasn't imposed sanctions on Ukraine for Russia's annexation of Crimea and Moscow back Serbia, encountering international recognition of Kosovo. See how this works? 
Back to Schellenbacher and goodness. Goodness also ties into the Novomatic scandal, and with Schellenbacher, not only to the theft of classified information from the BVT, alongside Wise Advice and others, but Marsalek's attempted, attempted meddling in the affairs of the BVT, even going, as going so far as to recommend a Russian friendly as the new head, and back to Marsalek's martial games in Libya, and to Wirecard adding data and payments all back to Russia and those Ukrainians, at least the ones sympathetic to Russia. And what all of these schemes and related players have in common, beyond each other, is money laundering. Schellenbacher, through these same oligarchs for whom he was allowing use of his Austrian company, accepted tens of millions of euros from them and the FPO leadership if he would just join the National Council and become a member of Austria's parliament with the idea of helping certain causes favorable to Russia and certain circles within the Ukraine. Wirecard, Marsalek, and there's the link to Schellenbacher and goodness. Schellenbacher as a node between it all. Now, with his pending trial for his involvement with Marsalek's escape, let's see if he turns state's evidence. One can imagine Schellenbacher, if he has any sense at all, may be a tad nervous as to the extent of the knowledge he possesses and who of his chums or former chums may not want that information to see the light of the courtroom. <sighs> okay, take a breath. If you've been on a jog whilst listening, now's the time to stop and stretch. And if you've been sitting, breath held, get up, get a fresh cup of coffee or something, breathe, move about, because part two is coming up. Wirecard is still in motion, and the full money laundering, it's only just getting going, that story. In fact, more on Ibiza in part two. Let me back up here in just a moment for the next part of this episode, because there is so much more. I'm Mikhail Ryder-Gordon. You're listening to Lies, Spies, and Corporate Crimes, The Wirecard Saga. As always, my thanks to Tom Fox, the Compliance Podcast Network. And now, part two. I'm COO at Enatech. Now, in response to many jurisdictions tightening internet gambling laws, offshore centers began offering more than just company registrations and banking. They began to offer economic citizenship, you know, shipping and online or internet gambling. Now, offshore industries, right? It's not new or novel. Think about Liberian flagging of ships, etc. And even moving gambling, quote, offshore, back when that meant putting the casino on a boat and floating it in international waters, not new. Think pirate radio. But offshoring, it's often a response to regulations. I told you of Intercasino, based in Antigua in 96. The UGA passed in the U.S. was because the U.S. government had identified online casinos as mm, highly likely to facilitate money laundering and organized crime. And they also worried about social aspects, you know, underage gambling, gambling addiction. U.S. efforts post-UGA was aggressive. It legislated to block payment processing to the sites and applied anti-money laundering regulations to online gambling for banks, credit card issuers, and MSBs. The U.S. began arresting and charging operators of these sites if they entered into the U.S. So the only way jurisdictions that bank illicit online gambling can, can enforce is if they impose AML CTF measures aimed at reducing profitability and 
catch those processing, the transactions. Those unlicensed, uh, the, the licensed online sites, they're still going to run a risk of being exploited by transactional organized crime or other criminals. But it comes down to identifying the origin to the money behind the transaction. If an unlicensed online gambling, gambling business offers services in a jurisdiction that requires to be licensed, then it still operates illegally and the income it generates may be criminal. If that's the case, subsequent use of its income constitutes money laundering. The ease with which the proceeds of illegal, illegal gambling can be laundered depends on the ability of financial institutions to identify and investigate those customers whose income may derive from in illegal gambling, including the operators. Recall, the risk-based approach requires will and initiative to identify questionable transactions. Merchant service providers like Wirecard are required by law to ensure that the merchants they service and the payments they process are both known and legitimate. Wirecard knew the origin of the income, and they knew not to ask. So the EU's fourth money laundering directive, as, as amended, required member states to regulate providers of gambling services, including online gambling. However, it enables these, all the members of the EU to exempt, this is their word, not their wording, not mine, exempt in full or in part providers of certain gambling services from AML-CTF regulations on the basis of the proven low risk posed by the nature and, where appropriate, the scale of operations of such services. Can you see loophole? Having availed itself of this option, for instance, the UK only extends AML-CTF rules to casinos, which are subject to the Gambling Commission's supervision. But with no irony whatsoever, the UK Gambling Commission also regulates binary option trading sites domiciled in the UK. But what is ironic is that non-casino online gambling has been specifically cited by Britain's Gambling Commission as posing a high risk. So, somewhat in Britain's defense, <laughs> those who do choose to operate online gambling sites not deem casinos out of the UK, out of the UK, and really, why would you set up there? Well, then the operator must demonstrate they have adequate AML controls established in order to obtain and maintain their license to operate. Now, you know why so many site operators head to Malta or some other law enforcement jurisdiction? Well, they don't have absurd rules like the UK's. The European Commission cites huge transactional volumes within online gambling and notes that, hmm, only a moderate level of expertise is required of a would-be launderer. Merchant service providers such as WireGuard are expected to understand that transaction laundering is a massive problem. A merchant can be defined as really any business that accepts credit, debit, prepaid, or gift cards as a form of payment with the assistance of a merchant acquirer. Well, Wirecard served as acquirer and processor. And these days, merchant purchases across border can run tens of thousands. That's not unusual. The problem is, whilst the cash is still being deposited into a bank account, the merchant acquirer and credit card company will have access to data that the merchant bank doesn't. That's right, the merchant's bank can't see it. Wirecard can see it, or could, but the banks couldn't. If a business's cash deposits increase, 
How could the bank determine that the increase was generated from illicit sources as opposed to legitimate business revenue? Therein lies one of the advantages to organized crime looking to launder using online gambling. From drug cartels, terrorist organizations, peddlers of counterfeit farm, porn kings like Akavan, and illicit gambling sites, right, using legitimate websites to mask their illegal activities. And money is laundered utilizing digital currency. Unregulated, prepaid card, debit cards, even Bitcoin-based cards, gift cards, money mules, bank accounts, shell company. Oh my God, the list goes on. Much of which wire cards supplied. Unregulated and inadequately regulated online gambling, right? These operators design their systems to manage huge volumes of transactions and cash flows. Okay. We can't say that Wirecard execs and their besties didn't know how to create complex chains of shell companies and handle millions of transactions. Let's take a gamble through some recent cases that have involved both online casinos and Wirecard. Between 2015 and 2018, Italian police carried out spates of arrests in connection with illegal online gambling or money laundering through online gambling. These enforcement actions showcase the extent of organized crime penetration of online gambling. The takedowns included some 68 arrests, the seizure of over a billion in assets in a number of jurisdictions. And in November of 18, uh, 2018, sorry, as a result, at least three mafia families' involvement in running online gambling outlets licensed in Malta and $20 million was seized in law when law enforcement took action against Malta-registered online gambling, gambling businesses, all tied to the Nandrangheta affiliates, and analogous charges against 41 other people, and more additional maybe $2 billion. Banker to many of these casinos, Wirecard. In 2020, the OCRP published a report on how Maltese online gambling sites had become such a cash cow to the Italian mafia. And in their report, they noted Malta had on paper nearly 300 casinos, but you couldn't actually see them if one walked down the street. They were all online, and most of their customers were scattered around the world. How did Malta become such a haven? And listeners, do note the timing here, because as with so many things... The chronology matters. I said so many things with Wirecard, with respect to Wirecard. Malta's online gambling industry launched in a big, big way in 2004 when the government, led by then Prime Minister Lawrence Gonzi of the Nationalist Party, introduced the first online gaming regulations within the EU. And regulation is probably a light, loose term for what they introduced. It was a gamble that paid off. Sorry, bad pun. Malta hosts one of the highest concentration of online gaming license holders in the EU now. And it breaks in billions annually. Not bad for such a tiny place. It helpfully adds a low-tax regime, and it's also one of the easiest jurisdictions in the EU under which to obtain a gaming license for an online casino. That's the part about the really light regulation. Now, this explosive growth of online gambling and its connection to organized crime and money laundering, they were actually subjects of, remember Maltese journalist uh, Daphne uh, Caruana Galizia? 
before she was killed by a car bomb in October 2017, she was actually investigating these connections. Now, the OCCRP's examination of the island industry spoke of Italian investigators identifying repeated instances of criminal infiltration and lack of effective oversight by the Malta Gaming Authority, and that MGA uh, regulates the industry there. Maltese registered operators were allowed to set up betting shops in any EU country as long as the computer terminals are linked to servers back in Malta. Prosecutors in Palermo found that despite the rules that are intended to limit access to customer uh, to websites where customers can log into their own accounts using their funds and play games directly, these sites were being controlled by organized crime. And the online casinos serving really more as ATM for criminals. Processing those cash withdrawals, wire card. Sites that lost their license continued to operate, including at least one site run by a former Malta gaming official, one with ties to Wirecard accounts. Now, fast forward to January of this year, 21, where in Calabria, Italy, 355 of those arrested in the sweeps targeting uh, the Nandrangheta crime syndicate began appearing before a judge. These are the folks who ran drug trafficking and those illegal online casinos and sports betting, not just in multiple countries, Malta too, all of whom are believed to be linked to Wirecard or accounts held there. Mm, all of them. Elsewhere in the world, U.S. Uh, Department of State has alleged that sports gambling companies in Costa Rica are suspected of laundering millions of dollars. In 2016, the Department, U.S. Department of State again also reported that Curacao's gambling industry was allegedly intertwined with a mafia. The same year, Curacao's then prime minister was found guilty of accepting bribes from a casino owner and related money laundering, and the verdict was upheld by its Supreme Court in 2018. Accounts associated with some of those Curacao online gambling companies, they link back to O'Sullivan and Wirecard. In 2019, U.S. DOJ, Southern District again, brought criminal charges against a Russian-Israeli, Jerry Shalon, a.k.a. Jerry Shalashashvili, a.k.a. Philip Mousset. Oh, he's got a bunch of names. Uh, as well as partners Joshua Aaron and Ziv Orenstein. Shalon was the leader and self-described founder of a really, what could be called, a sprawling cybercriminal enterprise operated through hundreds of employees, co-conspirators, and infrastructure in over a dozen countries. Between approximately 2007 and July 2015, Shalon owned and operated unlawful internet gambling businesses, not only in the U.S., but across the world. And he owned and operated multinational payment processors for illegal pharma suppliers, counterfeiters, even malware distributors, unlawful internet casinos, and he also owned and controlled Coin.mx, an illegal U.S.-based Bitcoin exchange that, well, let's just say it, it ran afoul of U.S. anti-money laundering laws. Law enforcement used undercover officers to gamble on one of Shalon's online casinos using a debit card. And Shalon and his co-conspirators, right, caused the uh, agent's debit card to, the statement, the credit card statement falsely reflected that the money spent by the agent on the casino website was for a purchase at housesforpets, with a Z, dot com, a phony merchant. Clever listeners that you are, 
you recognize this method of concealment and the faux pet products as a hallmark of Akavan and Vegan for proceeds headed through Wirecard. For nearly eight years, Shalon and his co-conspirators earned hundreds of millions of dollars in illicit proceeds, and Shalon concealed at least a hundred million in Swiss and other bank accounts, Wirecard. They laundered their vast criminal proceeds through at least 75 shell companies and bank and brokerage accounts around the world. Sound familiar? The defendants controlled the companies and accounts using aliases and by fraudulently using some 200 different ID documents, including over 30 false passports um, from at least supposedly six, you know, purportedly they were false, what, some 16 countries. And Shalon and his his colleagues, I, I will I will say, they they were multifaceted. They they had a, a wide portfolio. They were also hackers. <laughs> yeah, but from at least in or about 2007, those early Wirecard years, up to the time of their arrest in the summer of 2015, they operated very lucrative and illicit internet casinos. And through the casino companies. Yeah, they generated a whole lot of money. And so whilst the DOJ's complaint listed several U.S.-based banks as victims of Shalon and company for the accounts opened under fake names with them, one bank wasn't so much a victim as a facilitator. Any guesses? What's the name of this show? Okay, Wirecard. Additionally, in the final four years before they were arrested, Shalon et al. operated ID Pay and Toter, multinational payment processors for criminals who, well, sought to receive payments by, via credit and debit cards, and, right? Linked to Shalon et al., Uwe Lenhoff, Gal Barak, Vlad Shmirnov, oh, you've forgotten these guys. Remember I told you to go back to episode 11 on binary options? After all, Galbarak's buddies, the Cartoo brothers, got their start in online casinos too. Shalon and Barak both had interests in binary option platforms, Tratologic if you're keeping track, and the platform was used by Lenhoff for option 888 and the revenue run through Wirecard. Is there no originality left? Criminals can get so lazy. And since we're on the subject of these losers, only months before Wirecard went belly up, in April 2020, the Central Cybercrime Unit of Bavaria, out of the prosecutor's office in Bamberg, led Operation Action Day, which saw police and prosecutors from Germany, Austria, Serbia, and Bulgaria, as well as the European Judicial Authority Eurojust, take down two international groups of organized crime that ran Forex, binary options, and related sites. One group operated such sites as Xtrader FX, CryptoPoint, Option Stars Global, Safe Markets, whilst the other ran Trade Capital, Phenomatics, Noble Trade, Forcelot, oh, go, the list goes on, charged with already cheating thousands of investors out of more than 100 million euros. Nine people were arrested, including a German national. As part of that takedown in April 2020, the Bamberg Prosecutor General's office seized almost two and a half million euros in an account stashed at none other than payment service provider Wirecard. 
one of the two groups of arrested were also involved in another major case of cyber fraud that was taken down in 2019. And then the primary suspect, the German who was arrested in Austria in January 2019, right? Well, that was Gal Barak, suspected accomplice, right? And extradited to Austria. Go back to episode 11. Now, you'll note a common theme here, and I don't just mean online casinos. All of these are criminal prosecutions, and a range of suspects where Wirecard just happens to be the payment processor or banker of choice. For the past decade, there's been a steady trickle of these cases. Steady trickle of these cases. Now, we're going to start seeing them coming thick and fast. In fact, some of the best Wirecard info is emanating from these criminal prosecutions of those they process for, no matter the jurisdiction. And folks, more is about to be revealed. Not here, not here. I'm talking about some some new indictments. Okay, in keeping with our theme, let's look at one last one last case before we close out. This New Zealand High Court case showed up only a month or so ago. Arjong v. NF Global Limited, a case arising from an insolvency and not wire cards. The plaintiff, Michael Moshe Arjong, filed a claim as a creditor against NF Global Limited, a New Zealand entity owned by Starboard Capital. And NF Global is an online payment platform that was negatively impacted by the collapse of Ipagu, the UK electronic money issuer, where NF Global held client accounts. A major problem for NF Global is that the bank into which much of its customer funds were paid is, well, it's under insolvency administration in the UK. So NF Global can't meet its customer demands for repayment. But that wasn't why they rejected Arjong's demand for his money back. No, they contested Arjong's claim, but for different reasons. Here's what happened. So NF runs this online payment platform. Its customers lodge funds with it and use the platform to transfer funds internationally. It's not, however, a bank. NF Global is a registered financial service provider, and it operates a payment platform, but much of its business comes from customers of an English wealth management company called Northern Fetus, for which it's associated. Now, NF Global's customers use the platform to transfer funds between themselves and pay third parties. NF itself doesn't hold customer funds. The funds, right, are held in segregated client accounts with correspondent banks. Unfortunately, the largest was Ipagu. Okay, Arjong, a customer of NF's, paid funds totaling more than 1.2 million euros to it. But when he directed NF to pay money back out, it didn't follow his instructions. So he asked for his money back. But NF didn't return the money upset, he filed a statutory demand and brought the New Zealand proceeding to have an NF put into liquidation on the ground that it is not able to pay its debts. Now, a few other customers of NF Global have had similar experiences to those of Mr. Arjong, and for similar reasons, NF pushed back. NF had its own rationale for not following its customer instructions. Whilst it acknowledged to the High Court that it holds some of Arjong funds, NF doesn't view him as a creditor. No, they say they suspect him of money laundering. Now, Arjong lives in Israel, but spends much of his time in Italy. He's a citizen of both countries. 
Now, he moved to Israel in 2009, but he deals with and for a Belize-based company, Richfield Capital Limited, which used an online trading platform and was associated with the 24 Option Group. Arjong's role was introducing potential customers to Richfield Capital, for which he was paid commissions on the volume of the traders he referred and the value of their trades. Now, listeners, I know you're clever. So you recognize 24 Option Group and Richfield Capital as names that have cropped up before with respect to WireGuard. That's right. Richfield Capital is licensed by none other than Rotler Limited. Okay, go back to episode 11. Seriously. Rotler, binary options, Serbian boiler rooms, all those players from Israel, Cyprus, Russia, wire card as banker to the many entities of Rotler. Remember, Gal Barak, Uwe Lenhoff, right? Rainer Trauer. To prove his relationship with Richfield, Arjong produced an MOU governed by the laws of Cyprus between himself and Richfield Capital, dated 1st of February, 2018. Arjong told the New Zealand High Court that he opened personal accounts with NF Global at the suggestion of his Italian accountant. He claimed his purpose was to facilitate international transfers to Israel. And as proof of his intent, he gave NF a copy of a form he had hand-filled in saying, I'm an Israeli citizen and tax resident, and I'm going to send funds to, quote, Israel and others, and funds would come from Israel and others. Now, he told NF he expected to make eh, only maybe 12 transactions a year, and the average amount of each transaction would be no more than 10,000 euros. He gave his business name as Arjong Consultant Limited, although he did admit to the court that no such separate entity actually was ever established. But NF showed the court that Arjong, in just an eight-month period, transferred more than 1.6 million euros to his account with them, and then sought to send the monies onward to other places and accounts. This is the guy who said on average his yearly transaction would total 120,000, shifted in eight months more than 1.6 mil. Arjong made the first transfers himself, but then the next four came from Richfield Capital, and the last came from Fidolfa S.A., Then Arjong bought two high-value Rolex watches with funds held in his NF Global account. But this wasn't the only reason NF felt a bit squiffy about Arjong. They told the court that in April 2019, Arjong requested NF Global make two transfers of 500,000 each to two Israeli insurance companies. Now, he says that he intended to place the funds with these companies for investment. When NF Global asked for supporting documentation, Arjong sent website links to the insurance company and then provided the documents in Hebrew. Eventually, NF had them translated, and they discovered Arjong was making payments into savings accounts with the insurance companies. Savings accounts. Then NF canceled the transaction, so Arjong tried a different tact. Now, NF was getting annoyed and concerned, so they asked for additional documentation about Arjong's precise relationship with Richfield Capital. He had claimed to be running a call center for Richfield, but it appeared he was brokering for them, introducing 24-option customers to contracts for difference, CFD, investments. These are highly speculative. And being paid 
by 24 option a 35% commission, which increased with the volume of trades. But to NF's mind, they couldn't they couldn't square how investors were benefiting after such high broker fees. As support for his work with Richfield and 24 Option, Arjong gave NF details of customers he'd introduced, but for privacy reasons, he declined to name them. And then there was the matter of separating Arjong from Richfield. This was 2019, and Richfield Capital was squarely linked to 24 Option, which was being investigated by regulatory agencies in the U.S., Canada, Russia, the U.K., and Cyprus. Its banker, Wirecard Technologies, was the subject of money laundering investigations. In fact, the Italian financial regulator, Consob, had banned Richfield Capital and 24 Option from even trading in Italy. Remember, Arjong is based in Italy. The evidence included a complaint, you know, you've heard about this one uh, from the Austrian-based Consumer Rights, uh, about 24 Option, defrauding. NF's compliance office had had enough. So after some back and forth, in August 2019, NF's compliance officer <laughs> instructed that $1.2 million should be paid back to Richfield, the reason being, we're done, Count, account closed. Arjong emailed requesting that his name be included instead of Richfield Capital. And NF? NF Global was not reassured by the information Arjong provided, so the compliance team in London filed a SAR on behalf of NF Money, with the UK National Crime Authority. Fast forward to March 2021. NF Global sought the permission of NF Money and the UK NCA to disclose this in evidence in this, in this proceeding Arjong had brought. And that's how it came to light in New Zealand High Court decision this month. Unfortunately, Arjong and Richfield, thus far, they're getting away with it. The proceeding was a question of NF's insolvency in light of the account funds being tied up in Ibuku. It wasn't a criminal case, so the high court has allowed Arjong to pursue his claim against NF and seek repayment of his likely very dirty 1.2 mil. In the words of the Stones, Honey, got no money, I'm all sixes and sevens and nines. Say now, baby, I'm the rank outsider but you can be my partner in crime. And that's all for part two. I know it was a long one of know when to hold them. My thanks to Tom Fox and the Compliance Podcast Network. As we're coming up in just a few weeks on the anniversary of Wirecard's public implosion, I've got something special planned for listeners, so stay tuned. I'm Mikhail Gordon with Lies, Spies, and Corporate Crimes, the Wirecard Saga. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Take care. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Wirecard Saga. The Wirecard Saga is a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.